Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and I'm Paralyzed Terminator. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care. And I'm Parallel Journey with Jason and Amanda. And today we have brought another podcast on here. Colleen Puckett has the F Word Foster Care podcast. And I listened to some of that. She has a story that I said, I've got to reach out to this gal. I want to hear her story. And I think you guys need to hear it too. How are you doing today, Colleen? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here with you guys. Hey, we're excited to have you here. You guys had kind of a, um, you know, everybody's got that, that listens in that, that has been part of this, has their own story in foster care. And you guys had a, had your own very unique kind of thrust into it. Yeah, absolutely. Very different story than I think a lot of people know or have experienced themselves or have heard others um, have the same type of story as we do. So how did you guys get drawn into this? Can you just tell us so, just a little bit? Yeah, so our children um, were both born very small for their age and for their gestation. And so our journey kind of started with that. They had a lot of different medical things that came with being preemies and being very small. And it kind of threw us into this world of special needs parents with medically fragile children. And if anybody's been in that world, it's very quick and easy to get the eye of the department sometimes just based off of your decision-making that you have in the medical world with your kids. So for us, um, we had had two other CPS investigations that didn't turn into anything. They basically were, hey, we have some concerns. Your children aren't growing. Let's kind of look at what's going on. For my oldest, the case closed very quickly after we found out she had a congenital heart defect. And they were like, okay, this is what's going on. We see it. We're going to let you guys go be. You're obviously doing a great job. The second time, my um, youngest daughter had a seizure and she had stopped breathing. And we were told, oh, well, kids don't stop breathing when they're having a seizure. So you must be making it up. So they called the department on us. The department closed it immediately, like the moment they came out and saw her home, saw the kids. And we're like, I don't know why anybody called on you guys. We're closing the case. So it ended up bringing us into the foster care system. My youngest was going through a lot of um, hard times with eating and she went into a feeding therapy program and she was not growing at the rate that the therapist expected her to. And so we were told there's three reasons why children don't grow. It's either A, they're puking it all up. And at this point, her reflux was getting much better under control. They said, or two, your child is choosing not to eat and you're saying that your child's finally eating. She's enjoying having dinner and sitting down and eating snacks or three, they're not being fed and didn't even take in consent, like consideration, like, Oh, genetics or something too. Like I'm not, I'm a very tiny person and I'm the runt of my family. <laughs> and it was just like, okay. Or, or maybe a fourth one, like something else. Like it's just how she is and who she is. Because otherwise she was pretty healthy. Like she was just very, very tiny. So it sparked an investigation into um, our family under um, medical abuse and neglect under the fictitious disorder of Munchausen by proxy. And so that's kind of where it started off with was we were accused, me in particularly, um, was in, uh, accused of starving my children to get attention. And so they... Um, came in and removed our children about two, about two days after it opened. But from what we've gathered, they actually were investigating almost a month prior to they actually coming to my home to even interview us. So they basically had already formed their opinion of our entire family and what they were going to do before they even showed up at our front door. Wow. Just wow. <laughs> You know, we, we've had children's division show up at our front door in the past. Before we were foster parents, they showed up at our front door once. And as it turns out, somebody who was 
angry with my wife and made a phone call and, and said that we were medically neglecting our child because he had a fever. I mean, mind you, it was a really controlled, normal fever that kids get sometimes. Um, but he had a fever and we were fortunate enough that when they showed up, the, uh, the workers who showed up were, could look at it and go, these kids are fine. And it was just kind of pushed away. You know, they closed the case as, and, and ruled it as unfounded. And we were actually kind of concerned when we looked at becoming foster parents, that might hold us out of it. But the, you know, the department that we dealt with was really pretty, pretty rational and reasonable. Wouldn't you say? They were, you know, except that they showed up at 10 o'clock at night to <laughs> about a kid who but had a we fever. had also been gone that afternoon too, and didn't get home until late and. Yeah, so they they showed up and and woke the kids up to scare the crap out of them and and all that good stuff. But other than that, I mean, the, the department was really pretty easy for us to deal with. It sounds like your your experience on on dealing with them was not quite so pleasant. No, not at all. <laughs> it was the complete opposite. And actually, the first night that they showed up, I was in an apron and cooking a full hen for our Cornish hens for like the first time in my entire life. I had homemade biscuits being made. All of the vegetables were, you know, fresh veggies and everything. And so it was like, really, you're coming and saying that I'm starving my children, but I'm in here literally in an apron cooking a home cooked meal. And but when they first came in, they actually showed up with SVU detectives because they were expecting to come in and actually arrest me that night. And they came in and spent about two to three hours with our family. The detectives and the CPS investigator was working tirelessly to actually kind of end the case because they were like, there's nothing here. Like this family is phenomenal. She's making homemade biscuits. Her kids are sitting down and eating dinner with no issues. The kids talk about how I cut up their bananas so perfectly. And at this time they were four, four, like just turned four and I think six. So relatively younger ages that you would expect that they're going to be very brutally honest about some things. Um, but they tried really hard to kind of end the investigation, but they just kept saying it's coming from the higher ups. It's coming from higher than my supervisor, supervisor, supervisor. And we just can't stop this. And that's kind of like what just kind of snowballed this. And then before we knew it, like the next day, there's police, CPS, and a liaison from the hospital just barging through to remove my kids. Well, for a home that's like neglecting kids and not feeding them, it sounds like I want to come over for dinner. <laughs> yeah. I, and, and what's sad is that from there, I, I have a hard time cooking now. Like it's a very hard thing for me to do because it was a night that I was so excited about a meal and it was like, now that's so traumatic and it's taken me a good while to be able to get comfortable to even cook in the kitchen again because of that trauma that is so related to food now. Oh, I bet. I bet. So you, you, your kids were taken away based on the fact that, that they were thin, right? Yeah. That they were tiny. They had some other medical conditions that they were trying to say I made up. Wow. <laughs> And how do you, how do you argue against that? I guess that, that that's the million dollar question. I, you were probably really trying to figure that one out in the moment. Yeah. Well, and you're not told like what to do when your kids are removed. They were taken and they were just, we were just told we're taking them to a hospital, which I'm sitting here going, you're taking them to a hospital, but you're telling me that they're not sick. Okay. Like that makes sense to me, but they take them and you have no contact. You don't know where they are. You don't know if they're okay. You're not allowed to ask questions. If you ask like how your kids are, like they try to use it against you. And so we had, we knew nothing. We were just told show up for court on this day and that's it. And so it was Mother's Day weekend. And I had to go through the whole weekend, not knowing anything about my children and just sitting here, just wondering where they are, if they were okay. You know, we couldn't pack them up fast enough. I mean, thankfully, like I already had most stuff packed because they were going over my parents' house to stay under a safety plan. But other than that, like if they were at my home, there's no way we would have been able to have the opportunity to pack everything that they wanted. So thankfully, like they had some of their stuffed animals and things that gave them comfort. 
but I didn't know anything was going on. We show up to court and I thought I was going to walk into court. My kids were going to come home that night. Like I had the entire waiting room filled with supporters and some people who actually work in the department. I had my employer and other coworkers. We had church members. We had family friends of family friends of family friends that were all coming out to support us. And I get there and I'm given an attorney and she's like, so you're not getting your kids back today. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, there's no, 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 no. That's not how this works. They're coming home with me because there's nothing wrong. Like we're a good family. And she's like, that's just not how it works. We have to now put together a really good defense to be able to show that you're a good parent and that you're a fit parent and everything else doesn't matter anymore. And that was devastating because with complex cases like this, it can take months before you even go into adjudication or trial. And for us, it took about four months to have our first court date for adjudication. And then we had to wait two more months to have our last date for adjudication. So it's almost six months of us just waiting to even show our case. And basically we had the department had all of the medical providers already subpoenaed. And we basically just had all of our medical records and every single person who came on the stand was like, oh no, mom's a great mom. Oh no, that diagnosis is correct. Nope, that's the diagnosis that I said. And anytime I was like, oh, but, but did mom ask you about this diagnosis? They were like, no, I told her about that. Or I told mom that it could be this or whatever. So it was like this constant trying to put words in my own mouth and trying to make my actions out as if I was trying to harm my children and get these medical diagnoses and everything was not the case. So the only people that they really had was the abuse pediatrician and the psychologist that was part of the feeding therapy. And ultimately the judge did not find that I had abused my children medically. He ended up finding deprivation because they were tiny and said, I don't know why it could be that that's just how they are. It could be that there's something in the home or it could be that they don't like eating around mom but I don't know what it is. They're just tiny. So we're going to find deprivation just based off of that. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. We'd like to take a quick minute to step out of the podcast here and ask you guys for a little bit of support. If you could share an episode with people, friends, in a group, with family, anywhere where there's somebody who would like to hear this. Also, if you'd like to join us and support our mission, a couple dollars a month would be really helpful. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash fostercarenation. Now back to the show. And so then my kids sat in foster care even longer because of that. Oh, man. That's just crazy. I'm just, as a parent, I'm trying to wrap my head around that, you know, because you're doing the best that you can for your kids and you're, you're feeding them. And, you know, sometimes body type is out of our control. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I can only imagine how helpless I would feel. And I'm just, I'm wondering, how how are you doing during all this time? Horribly. I was not doing well at all because, you know, I was also a young parent and my whole life, all I wanted to do was be a mom. Like that was my ultimate dream was to be a mom. And so here I have that opportunity and I'm living out my dream of being a parent. And I feel like we're doing so great. And then my kids are just taken from me. And I'm like, just left to have to figure out what I'm bad at is ultimately what you do is you just sit there and just keep thinking, what is all the things that I'm bad at? Because that's the only thing that matters right now. That's the only thing that's ever talked about is how awful I am. And you, you believe those things. You start to truly believe those negative things that are said about you, even if they're not true. Like, I thought there's no way that my children love me because if they did, then they would have grown because now I'm being told, oh, well, probably they just don't like to eat around mom. And then it's like, okay, so what am I doing to make my children feel that uncomfortable? And why am I like, am I really that crazy that I don't recognize these things? Am I really that psycho? Do my kids 
deserve to be taken from me? Do they deserve to never have me again? Am I never going to be good enough? And so I just completely put myself down to the ground. And if, you know, I, I had had depression as a teenager and they used that against me saying, oh, see, she has mental illness. And I'm like, well, what teenager might like, doesn't have depression sometimes, you know, I just sought treatment for that as a teenager and they used it against me. And so then I was scared to even go out to even seek treatment myself when my kids were taken to handle the trauma of removal in and of itself, but then also the trauma of what I was being told and hearing about myself and losing family and friends over it. And I was scared to have to go out and seek help for that. So it just was very, very, very lonely. And you just really completely tear yourself apart because there's nothing positive being said or supported for you during that time. And were you receiving any support from family or the caseworkers? Um, My family, yes. But then my family was going through their own grieving process because my children were around my family every day. We are all within like just a few miles of one another. My mom worked at my daughter's school. So we were always around one another. So my own family was having to grieve and go through that process too. They weren't able to see my kids as much as I was, if rarely at all. They were also kind of being under investigation because it was, well, you can't see the kids because you should have known something was happening. And so therefore you didn't protect them. So you don't get to see them. And so everyone's kind of having their own stuff to deal with, but they were really awesome in that we did a lot together. My sister opened her home for me on Christmas morning because my husband got to spend the night with them, um, with my girls and wake up Christmas morning with them, but I was not allowed to. And so my brother rallied and took me to go see a movie at midnight on Christmas Eve. And I woke up and went straight to my sister's house. And so they had a lot of, I had a lot of support from them. And I had a couple of really trusted friends that I was able to hang on to and were there for me and let me come over and just cry or just talk and, or just listen to them and their story. Cause I got off of all social media so that I could focus on the case. And so it was really kind of cool to kind of reconnect with people in that way, but it was definitely difficult. My husband didn't have his family to support him because our children were placed with his parents. And there was just a lot of things that were being said to them about me that were untrue. And it hurt his relationship with his family that he's still trying to repair a lot of, there's a lot of trust that was broken there. And, you know, nobody really showed up to support him the way that he needed in court. Um, So we had a lot of my family for the most part, but it was still very difficult. Um, As for my case manager, no, no support whatsoever. If I didn't annoy the crud out of him with calls and texts and emails, I never would have heard from him. He never checked in on us, never had longer conversations with us um, unless he was there to supervise a visitation in the office. That was about the only time that we ever had true conversations with him. And even then it was not actual conversation. It was a lot of, if I asked a question, the answers were usually, well, I mean, you know, I don't know. I'm going to have to go staff the case. And so anytime I would even try to talk or even talk to him about like us in general and just getting to know one another and just trying to humanize both of us, us and the case manager, there was just nothing. I was just met with cold answers, short, not really anything. And so, no, I mean, there is no support anywhere in the system. Um, I had to find my own therapist. And most of my resource and most of my services I found on my own as well, because they were just not provided to me or even offered. That sounds like about the worst case scenario. It, it sounds almost like there was somebody higher up who who had something out against you personally. Did you know somebody in that situation or was it perhaps just a matter of um, of politics and and procedures and somebody trying to to move their own their own career along by by finding this horrible horrible human and and getting some 
career advancement out of it or was something else going on? Do you know? I think it was definitely political because cases with Munchausen by proxy are so complex. And, you know, that's, and now one of the things is, is that the, my attorney who represented me, I now work with her and she's absolutely phenomenal. And majority of the cases she represents are medical cases, whether they are alleged shaken baby cases, alleged Munchausen cases, anything that has to do with the medical world. She kind of is amazing at those and stuff that I've learned about those types of cases. Nobody wants to touch them. They will come into the system. Nobody wants to make any decisions because it's complex and because you that unknown. And it does. It go, ends up those types of cases tend to go much higher up and it leaves everybody who's in the front line kind of going, you know, I can't make decisions. I can't say anything. I can't, you know, advocate for the family because I'm being told I can't. And we have all this liability that we have to look out for. And so I think it really was, but I also think it came down to, it was our, our children's hospitals, um, child abuse, pediatricians hold so much weight. And I've seen it in a lot of cases from a lot of different hospitals, those child abuse pediatricians, they, they snap their finger. It's done. And so that was a big part in my case though, was that the child abuse pediatricians kind of ran the case more than anything. And they never even spoke to me. Well, let me ask you this, because I think most of us know um, the, the vast majority of our information about Munchausen comes from one particular line in an Eminem song, if I remember right. Um, <laughs> I think that's the only place I've ever heard of it. So what is Munchau Munchausen syndrome? So Munchausen by proxy is when someone um, causes another person to appear ill or they make up the symptoms in order to gain attention from that person's illnesses. Um, a lot of times now it's looked at more, not necessarily in that way, because what they're finding is that a lot of parents with special needs kids um, get very anxious. And so a lot of the cases that I see now is these children have actual medical conditions and what has happened is like, and we can't, you know, WebMD is a big problem for this is that parents start to get anxious. And so then they see these little things and they start to nitpick and they start to put their child under a microscope, basically, and their medical conditions under a microscope and they get overly anxious. They start to like question everything about it and it kind of snowballs into some of these types of cases that I've seen. And in those, it's really just a preventative measure that can be put in place. It's just checking in with the parents, making sure that they have the right support and the therapy and everything to just kind of help them take a step back and like take a breath and have a little bit more confidence in what's going on with their child's medical. But that's what you see more times than none. Munchausen by proxy in and of itself is extremely rare. And we see way more cases that come in under that premise, but it's really just anxious parents with already medically fragile children. And it's just their cases and their care have just kind of gone out of control in a way, if that makes sense. I couldn't imagine going through that. Our, um, our oldest daughter was at Children's Hospital, and and I have nothing but glowing things to say about the Children's Hospital in St. Louis because she was there, and she had a really rare disease. Um, the the forget the actual numbers on it, but you basically have a better chance of winning the lottery than you do of uh, of getting the particular disease that she had. And I cannot imagine going through that experience with people trying to say that you're making it up and you're causing this disease to your child. Hey there, Foster Care Nation. If you'd like to find yourself in a group with like-minded people, head over to Facebook and you can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash foster care UJ. We've got a group over there where we talk about foster care, we talk about adoption, and we talk about all the things related. If your podcast player allows it, you can also reach down and hit that subscribe button so you get notified every week when we put up uploads. Every Tuesday, a new episode comes out. We'd love to see you next week. Now back to the show. Yeah, especially when you know that you're not. 
And like, even nowadays, like anytime we have to take our children to the doctor, I get anxious and I'm like, I don't know if I can. My husband comes with me every time we have put ourselves into a good place with really trusted doctors who know our history, who know our stories. And like, that makes it a lot better. But we've had times where we see a specialist for the first time since everything. And in my mind, I've started to make myself believe that I misunderstood and misinterpreted diagnosis. And then we get to a specialist and they're like, oh yeah, well, when they had this test, it was positive for blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so it really wasn't in my head. It Those were things that came out in court too, was like, nope, that's the true diagnosis. That test was absolutely needed. That surgery was absolutely needed. A hundred percent. This is what it is. No mom did not make a congenital heart defect in her baby. Like, you know, these were, I mean, I was like, how, how did I do that? Like, did I, <laughs> cause I, I didn't do anything wrong in my pregnancy. And that's not something I can just like make up and then make my child have a congenital heart defect. Like, you know, it was just these really crazy things, but it, they really did believe I was making all this stuff up. And in turn, I started thinking I was making it all up and it's impacted how I'm able to treat my children now because it really has made me second guess myself as a parent, especially in the medical sense for my children. Yeah, that's, that's just crazy. So what kind of medical diagnosis are, are you dealing with here? Well, a lot of it they've grown out of because a lot of it was preemie stuff. And so now it's just, you know, asthma and, uh, we've had a congenital heart defects, uh, corrected, but you know, you just have long-term follow-ups from that. Um, we basically like when they came home, I was like, okay, look, like, let's take an inventory of what do we ultimately need to be looking at? And really like everybody was so focused in on their weight and their growth and was micromanaging it. And I knew in my gut, like that wasn't needed. Like I knew my kids and I was like, I think, I mean, they're healthy little human beings. They're just tiny. And it was just like, oh, but they're not normal. They're not in normal range. They're failure to thrive. And when we just got like new doctors and surrounded ourselves with a family doctor instead of a pediatrician, those things weren't being micromanaged as much, which really helped our kids to grow and thrive even better. But it allowed us to also kind of go sit back and think, what can we just ultimately just let our kids be? And what is absolutely necessary for us to keep honing in on and focusing on? And what can we just allow to let them be? And a lot of it was just growing out of stuff. And like I said, it was a lot of preemie things, but it was once they got into like third or fourth grade, a lot of that stuff started to like they started growing out of, you know, reflex looks a little bit different and, you know, eating issues look different and sensory processing disorder looks different as kids get older. And as you have better skills and tools to use for your children. And that's ultimately like what we've learned. And, you know, they still have some things that come up and we just take it as it comes and we sit down with our kids because now they're much older. They're in middle school and high school. We talk about everything and we allow them to speak to the doctor about any of their concerns. And it's just really now we've just become, how do we get our children and teach them how to be advocates for themselves in situations, especially with their own medical world. And they've been doing a really good job at being able to pinpoint and tell doctors like, this is what's going on. Um, like, this is what's going on. This is what I am feeling. And we allow them to be part of those decision-making on any next steps that come up as well. Wow. It's hard to believe that they wouldn't, they wouldn't see things like the congenital heart defect as, it's like a real reason there. You know, we, Amanda has a friend who's, um, who's got a little guy, little Mr. B, he spent some time with us last week because his dad had to have gallstone surgery. And so he come over and hang out with us and he is, how old is he? Almost nine months, right about nine months. Yeah, about, yeah. And, and so he's a little guy. He's a little dude. He's but, still in three months clothes. But he had heart surgery already. I believe he's got another one scheduled, doesn't he? 
Um, not scheduled, but it's more than likely in the works. So yeah, and the doctors see that and they go, "Oh yeah, okay, this this makes sense. We expect this because of what he's going through." But she has yeah. to jump through the hoops. She's had to see a nutritionist. She's had to, you know, failure to thrive and you know adjusting his formula all over the place, calories and you know, and she's a first time mother too and. He was born premature. So all these odds are kind of like stacked up against her. And they're like, well, you know, you're just not feeding him. And she's like, no, I am, you know, all the time. This is my schedule. And, you know, it, it's hard enough to be a mom as it is. But when you have to prove that you're a mom, I mean, that's just a whole nother set of, of roles. Oh, yeah. And that and that's exactly like how you just explain it. Like, that's that's how our world was. And then you add on top, like we were young parents on top of it. And so then there's that extra stigma of like, oh, but you're young parents. So you don't know better. So even if you say that you're doing X, Y, and Z, it's hard for us to believe you because you shouldn't know that because you're too young. And, you know, it's just this constant cycle of just, nope, you still have to prove, you still have to prove, you still have to prove yourself. And it just, it's tiring. It's very tiring. How long did it take for, from, you know, the removal of your children to getting them back? How, how long was that? It was a year and a month. So 13 months that they were in care. Wow. And do your children remember any of that time in care? They do. And that's, um, it's hard. Like I said, they were with my in-laws, but they weren't around my in-laws a whole lot, like mainly holidays and then throughout the year. And, um, but it was, it's difficult because they, they'll say things that hurts my mommy heart, you know, because we had our way that we did nighttime and it just wasn't the same. And there's a lot of things that they missed out on and, you know, and then they'll say the happy moments. And then I get sad because I wasn't there for those happy moments. And, you know, we're eight years out and they're still telling me things that I've never heard of. And so there's still memories that they're telling me about happy or sad. And I just have to kind of sit there and take it all in and just be supportive in the way that I possibly can. And then go cry in the shower later while I'm trying to process their memories and what they've gone through. I'm certain that's probably strained the relationship with your in-laws. Yeah, it did. And we're, we're doing much, much better. It was, it put a burden on both of us. And I think, you know, we, we both were having our own opinions on one another and more so about like, you know, they were just being told some really awful things that just were not true. And they just started to believe those things. And then my husband and I are trying to say our truth, but then they don't believe that because defects has to be right because it's defects. Like they have to be right. Like everything has to be, you had to have abused your children for kids to be removed. Like no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it's like, that's not, it's not how it works. That's not how the system works. And, you know, it was, it's taken a lot for us to build our trust back up with one another. And, you know, my husband has had an easier time with that, but he also got to spend more time with them while our kids were in foster care. Um, because he had a lot more contact and visitation than I did. And so he was able to spend more time with them and the accusations weren't really on him. So his parents didn't have to like view him as the bad parent, whereas I was. And even at family gatherings, like other family members would never let their child be around me without someone overseeing. Or if I went to go talk to them or anything, help a child, it was like, no, 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 stay away, stay away. That's, that's a child abuser. We don't go near them. And so it's, it's just taken some time, but we've, as we've talked our truth and they've to told us their story and their side, we've realized like we were being put up against one another. And so it's been, we've been able to kind of heal and mend that relationship just because we've been able to kind of recognize we both were living a, like viewing each other differently. And we assumed each other's truth and it wasn't real if that makes sense like we just it we shouldn't have been put up against one another the way that we were and they shouldn't have been put in the position where they thought they couldn't speak to us 
or else the kids would be taken from them. And those are things that really rocked our relationship that we thought they were choosing to not speak to us and that they were choosing not to support us when ultimately they were doing it because they were being told, if you do, we're going to take the kids from you. So it's things like that where we have just learned each other's side and have been able to see each other's side more that we've been able to grow and rebond together as a family. That must be, it must have been a difficult place for your kids to be too, between mom and grandma and grandpa and dad. And, you know, how did your, how did your kids navigate that? I think it was very hard, but I think we, we tried our hardest not to allow like our emotions and what we were feeling to interfere with the kids being there. Any Once they came home, it was a little bit difficult um, because there just wasn't as much contact afterwards. And um, so that was kind of hard for our kids to kind of unre- go like, well, where's, where's my grandma? Where's my granddaddy? Where's, you know, my aunt? And why can't like, why haven't they been coming over? Why can't I go over there? And we were fine with it. Like we wanted them to keep having a close contact and a close relationship. But I think my in-laws and everybody just kind of needed that time to heal themselves. But as for when like they were in care, I was not allowed to really parent a lot. So I had to learn how to step back and allow my mother-in-law and my father-in-law to actually parent when I was around which was very difficult to do, but I did it as graceful as I possibly could. And I would encourage my kids if something came up like, Hey, well, let's go talk to grandma. Let's go talk to granddaddy. So I think for the most part, they didn't, they weren't too much into the middle because we'd really tried hard and not for them to be there. But it was after they came home that it was more so of this, like recognizing like, Oh, something's not quite right. Especially then when we would start getting together as family and doing holidays for the first time after foster care, because I wasn't allowed to be there during foster care. It's definitely was a lot more apparent. And we just talked openly with the kids and just explained, you know, we're all healing, just like they were relearning new life again with us. My in-laws were learning new life without them in their home. And we just tried to use that as the explanation more than we as much as we could because they're children they don't have they don't need to be put in the middle but it's hard in a situation like that when you're being told you can't work together you can't co-parent you can't partner up especially when it's a family member it's just it, it definitely does put a strain on everybody well good on you for finding grace in those moments because i don't think grace is the thing you would have seen coming out of my point <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it it takes a lot, but I, you know, that year I really had to, when I just realized I'm stuck in this place, I can't change anything. Do I think my kids should have been in foster care? Absolutely not, but I couldn't change that. And so I just started taking those days and my husband and I both did of just going every time we woke up, how can I be a better mother? How can I be a better wife? How can I be a better daughter? How can I be a better friend? How can I be better for myself? And those were the things I looked at every single day and tried to strive at. And you learn to get a thick skin. I found my confidence in that year. Whereas before I would just be like, okay, whatever anybody says, I'll let you walk all over me. And now I'm like, nope, I have a voice now and you're not going to take it from me. (laughs) And it's just gotten louder and louder. The more that I share my story, the more I'm like, you know, this is, I'm strong and I've gone through such trauma and adversity and I can just let it overtake and destroy me or I can just build myself up from it and use those times to teach myself patience and grace and gratitude as hard as that is you know most of the times the parents I work with towards the end of their cases uh, before children come home they have that like grace and they have that gratitude moments, whether they share it with anybody, because, you know, a lot of times you don't want to tell defects. Thank you so much for taking my kids. I really appreciate the time that I've had to grow, (laughs) but instead they're, you know, they'll be honest and say, wow, I hate my kids that are taken, but I am so grateful for 
the services that I was, re- I've been receiving. I'm grateful for the growth I've been able to have. I'm thankful for everybody who's taking care of my kids. And I'm even thankful for defects. And then they'll be like, please don't tell them I said that. And then, <laughs> but you do, you just kind of learn that you just see life very differently. And it's, you don't take anything for granted after that at all. So what has been the lesson that this has taught you walking through this incredibly unfair, ridiculous situation that you've walked away from and, and, um, and gone, wow, like this is the place where this has added value, even though it hurt. What's been the most valuable lesson? Probably to learn that I had a different calling in life than I thought I did for the longest time. I wanted to work um, as a pediatric nurse or a teacher and I kept pushing myself in those areas, but nothing seemed to work or even working in, um, with youth groups and everything. And I, it never would stick. And after this, um, experience that I had, it was a few months after my children were, um, came home, my attorney was going to go speak at, uh, at a conference for attorneys. And she asked if I wanted to come and speak on a panel. And I was like, sure, why not? And it was actually on the medical side of things. And I was there with some other parents and I started to see this other side of the system that I didn't know existed. And from there, she was like, wrote me a note. And she was like, Hey, do you want to come work for me? Check yes or no. And that we always laugh because now we've been together for eight years and we're like best friends. And I'm like, it was our first little love note. <laughs> but she was like, do you want to work? And I said, yeah. And from there, we just built this partnership. And I found out that like, ultimately I had to go through what I went through so that I can support parents that are in the system so that I can elevate parents' voices that are in the system to make changes, to make policies, and to really kind of wrap the system around a family well-being system instead of casting parents out. Because so many times parents are not given support. They're not given a voice. They are discarded. We are belittled. I mean, I just, I can't say how many times I was just talked like I didn't exist and I wasn't right there in front of them. And I was just a case number or I was the mom or the mother. I never had a name. And it was, but my kids had names. My kids had all like all these supports and things like that, but I had nothing. And so the lesson that I learned was just, this is what I was made to do. I was put on this earth for this. And the only way that I was going to be able to do it was that I was going to have to go through something tremendously hard. And, you know, I, more good has come out of it than bad. And it's hard to say that, but it is true. And, you know, I'm stronger. My family is stronger. We, my husband and I's marriage is stronger than most of my friends' marriages. And it ultimately comes down to that. Like we had to go through something so traumatic and we are now built into a very strong family that is built of resilience and strength. And now I just, I'm just so thankful that now I see where my calling was and I've never been happier in my life because of it. Well, it's amazing that you've been able to get to that place out of this, but I'm just going to back up for a second. You were a pediatric nurse before this, and they still decided that you were the problem. No, I was actually an EMT. Um, I had just finished EMT school and I was going into, wanted to go into nursing school, but I ultimately, every time I tried something happened that kept me from being able to get into the program. I would get all the way up there, start to apply. And then something happened. My kids needed me or my husband needed to be able to take on a second job. So I wasn't able to, or I needed another job. So I didn't have the time to go into nursing school. Um, so something always happened. Um, so something always happened. And then it was just afterwards, I was like, that's ultimately not what I'm supposed to do, but it's usually used against you if you're working in the healthcare field and you're being accused of Munchausen or anything similar to that, because you would typically see it in someone that has any type of medical history as well. So that was just another thing that actually went against me and not help. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something else, but it's, it's a testament to the, uh, to the line in the song that I quote all the time. If you know, if you want to hear God laugh, just tell him your plans, right? Yeah. When you think you know where you need to be, Sometimes, sometimes you're going to be told you're wrong. 
<laughs> oh, for sure. And I was told I was wrong so many times. And when I stopped fighting against that and I took this and I ran with it. And especially when like, we really started, when we started our podcast was when a lot of family members and a lot of friends actually heard about what we went through for the most part, nobody knew. So I was living this double life of like supporting families and speaking nationally and statewide, but only in the system. My, my personal life never intercede, like I never intermingled with that. And the moment that I was like, I'm done, I need to live my truth. It has just, everything has skyrocketed. And so is like just my calling and my career and the opportunities that have been open to me. And I was like, that's what I've been supposed to be doing this whole time is just being living my authentic truth and my authentic self. And since then it's been phenomenal. That's a story that I've talked with a lot of people about and that's living your truth, being willing to speak your truth in public, being vulnerable enough to step out and say, Hey, here's the thing that I went through and telling that story. And it's amazing how much good you can put into the world, how much effect your story can have on another human being when they see you talk about what you've been through and helping them through theirs. And it sounds like that's what you've, you're, you're like, your career has turned into. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, um, I definitely have seen that when, it, so one of the reasons why I didn't share my truth and share it with others was because of the stigma. I was scared of what I was going to get back from people and the judgment and just the negativity that surrounds foster care and especially parents whose children are in foster care are in family preservation. You are, you know, that stigma is so nasty and I didn't want to have to deal with that. But what I've learned is like, since sharing my story, I got the total opposite. I've had nothing but support and love in if somebody is judging me, then they're not telling me, <laughs> which is fine by me, but I'm, I'm definitely being supported and everybody's just been rallying around me. And that's, I kind of needed that to know, like the stigma doesn't matter. What matters is me being authentic and me being truthful about myself. And what an example that lays out in front of your kids. Yeah. You know, for them to well, see and that and change their yeah, life. And we talked yeah, we talked as a family before the podcast and I said, this is what I, what I want to do. Is everybody on board? And it wasn't just our children. Like I asked my family, I asked some of my close friends that were there. And I just said, this is what I'm wanting to do. Are y'all guys on board? And everyone was just, yes, please. It's about time. And so I did it. It was so liberating. It was, I mean, my husband and I just sat there on our bed and just told our story and cried and but afterwards I was just like, yes, like I, I just, I, I could just breathe. And I felt like it was a big healing component for us as well. That's one of the things we found is, is that a lot of people, a lot of people we've interviewed and talked to have said afterwards that it's just cathartic to be able to, to tell their truth, to speak their truth out into the world and not, not worry about who's judging them for it. And just to, for once be able to to let it out into the world and say, Hey, my life was really hard and here's why. And whether that's a, a parent who, who was through the system or a kid who went through the system because a parent did something wrong, you know, we've, we've had both ends of that. And it's, it's very mm -hmm. useful for, for people to be able to, to put that out there. And, and I've gotten back a lot of feedback as to how that's impacted people over the last what, year and a half or so that we've been doing this podcast and just letting people tell their story. Yeah. And I love now, like you hear parents' stories more often and you're hearing youth's voices more often. And it's really kind of changing child welfare altogether. You know, we're really starting to see it as a community of support and love. And we can only do that by sharing our stories on all ends of the spectrum of foster care from all different sides and parties. And, you know, everybody has a story within the system. And, you know, one thing with it is that I've always said, like, nobody's too good to be in the system. Everybody is one knock away from having, you know, defects at their front doorsteps. And 
it's amazing that every single year I get a number of people who will message me that I've known growing up who are like, Hey, I've got a friend, I've got a family member who are currently dealing with defects in their lives. And I'm like, see, like everybody kind of has a story that has to do with child welfare. And we have to start to just talk about it more often and normalize it in a way so that we can start to figure out how can we help families in an upstream way? How can we provide more prevention to the community? And the only way we're going to find those things out is through conversations and learning more about what would have helped families way in the beginning. And you do, you do that through conversations and hearing people's stories and what ultimately made their change, what ultimately was what they needed to grow and thrive. Now, are you working with DFAC now trying to help them, uh, help them change the way that they approach this or, or are you still working with, with, uh, your lawyer that, that you had or where, where all are you, are you reaching out to people at? Everywhere. <laughs> I still work. Um, I'm still contracted with my attorney and she represents parents. She's also a child's direct attorney as well as a guardian ad litem. And so I work with parents in all of those aspects. And then I was um, nominated and I'm part of the member of the Georgia's Parent Advisory Council who works with the prevention service um, units within DFACS. And we promote and give the parents perspective. It's kind of a multitude of different types of parents. So we've got parents with lived experience. We have parents whose children have mental illnesses. We have a uh, um, foster parents, any caregiver that has had an impact within the DFACS world, whether it's through prevention services, um, welfare, DFACS, um, however it may look, we come together and we advise the department on different policies or different pilot programs. We also talk about like different services. Um, a big thing though, is that we work on the preventative service side of it and trying to Think of what are some other preventative services that we can put in place here in Georgia that can help, um, that would help prevent child abuse. And then I'm also on uh, the Birth Parent National Network, as well as the Birth Foster Parent Partnership that works on building partnerships between foster parents and parents. What kind of projects have you been able to, to work your way through with that? So right now I'm on a fellowship and we're working on providing different um, opportunities and avenues for parents' voices to be heard, as well as to promote like how is it best to like interact with parents and gain their trust so that we can build um, trusting relationships throughout the whole system. I've also been working on um, with a pilot program on a parent and foster parent partnership I'm working on some storytelling videos that uplift and elevate parent and family stories of reunification. And then, um, I, you know, we just, we are asked a lot just to like kind of come in on different meetings that they're having within the division and just kind of saying like, well, you know, maybe if you word it this way, you know, a parent's not going to crumble up the paper and throw it away. Or if you word it this way, you're probably going to get a parent who's going to be more open and to talking to you. And so it's kind of just like before they kind of do big projects, having us kind of come in and review them to make sure like it's going to be, parents are going to receive it in the best way that they possibly can. Um, so we just, ha we have a lot going on. It's kind of a fairly, I joined in November and it has, what I've seen is just phenomenal things. We're asked to speak a lot at different opportunities with um, within the division. And then I um, speak nationally at different conferences as well as statewide at different trainings for attorneys and judges, as well as for defects too, of different ways to promote a more successful reunification in cases. Wow, that's that's quite the story. You went from, from them coming in and removing your kids to getting your kids back to working with the same organization. Talk about just, just a, a wonderful way to view it that man, this is a messed up situation, but you guys help are helping to fix it. 
Yeah. And that it, it's one of those, you have to pinch me moments because I talked to some other parents that are on the council who have lived experience. And we've talked about it before. Like it, when you first join, you're like, um, this is weird. And am I going to like this? Are they going to receive me? And it has been phenomenal. Like they could have not been any more supportive and it has changed my viewpoint on the system too. And I, I'm so grateful for the opportunity because of that, because it brings in a whole nother healing component of being able to talk to them and share my truth and what my likes and dislikes are about them and that they receive it and like want to make changes to support families in general. It's just been, it, it makes it easier, but yeah, at the beginning, it was definitely like constantly going like, um, wait, what am I doing? And I'm having conversations with you and I'm laughing. What is happening? It, it was definitely pinch me moments for sure. If nothing else, the normalizing that conversation between a parent who was, who was forced into the system into being more or less a coworker and equal with them has to change their perception of who you are. Oh, for sure. And that's, you know, they, they say over and over, like, they're just so thankful to hear parents speaking and each one of us on the council and just how big of an impact we're making. And that's one of the biggest things is like, we keep talking about like, we have to even the playing field. The, you know, parents are more successful when they feel they're equal to those around them and not constantly trying to live up to someone else and thinking everybody else around them is superior. And when you just come down and you're just right there at the same level, it's really amazing. And so I've been very, it, it has been very humbling to have that experience with them and to see their feedback and acceptance of it as well. You know, you remind me of a conversation we had with a, a woman named Amy who told her story of, I mean, she was a full-blown meth dealer and she told her story and, and how it, how it all played out and how she got back on the right track. She got out of the craziness she was in. She worked her plan. She got her kids back and we just saw her the other night. Yep. yep. We had a little, uh, they, they're doing a fair sort of a thing on the, the first Friday of every, of every month throughout the summer months and spring and summer months. And we just happened to run across her and she's there with her kids and, and still living her life and, and taking care of things. And, and she's somebody who came in for good reason, right? When they find $10,000 worth of meth in your pocket, um, you probably need some services for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but to see the way that, that she turned that around and got her life back on a track to where she was focused on taking care of her kids. And she did that by working through the system and with some of those workers. It sounds like the work you're doing is only helping to to shore that system up where you, people can work together and not against one another. Absolutely. I always say like we should all have baseball shirts and all we have on the back is just team family because we're all there for the same thing. We're just there to have resilient, happy, thriving, safe families. And we can be successful at that. And even more so than what we are, if we do look at it as one big team and that we're all here to support the family united. And, you know, I, I absolutely think that the department's there for a reason. And, but I think that we can, we could do better. And I think as a, even as a community, we can do better by, making these conversations more normal by lifting up families and trying to say like, Oh, what, what can my church do to help other families that were, that are within the system? Can I open it up to allow them to have visitation when they can't have visits in the home? So they're not at McDonald's. They can have a more relaxed environment where they can cook dinners. You know, there's so many different ways that everyone can get involved to make a better system and to make it a more friendly, happier, loving, supportive environment for all of our families and the children within the system and the parents. And it, it is, it just starts by conversations and it starts by sharing stories on all ends and just being open to change and being open to positive change in the narrative, but also positive change in our actions. Wow. I don't think I could have said it better myself. <laughs> Because that's what we have. We have a system that's supposed to be helping kids get through and, and raise the next generation. Because let's be honest, we need a good generation of kids coming up because they're going to be making our healthcare decisions. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. They're going to be the, the nurses and doctors in the, in the old folks home when I get there. And, 
trust me, I plan on needing that sort of stuff. I need some good doctors and nurses in there because. <laughs> oh dear. Right. Because we're, we all, we, we need to think about that. What's the next generation coming behind us going to do and working together the way that you're talking about is the way to, to create that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think too, it can get kids out faster and get families reunited faster so that we can focus on those who really, really need even more attention, right? And especially those children who can't reunify with their families, being able to provide them with more attention. We can do that by reunite, like reuniting, but a night, but uniting as a front together, a positive environment for families in the system and positive support that actually works and not just throwing unnecessary resources at families too. And really kind of taking that time to realize what parents and families need and really kind of wrapping them around with that service and that support can change everything. And like I said, then we're available to be able to really focus on those who truly, truly, truly need even more assistance or need to be adopted and fostered long-term and find permanency. It's harder to do if we can't take care of the families right there at the get-go. Well, and I mean, you said it a little bit ago, you said team family. And then you, I know too often a lot of the stories that we hear, you know, kids come into care and it's just the parents feel so helpless and they hear all these stories of, you know, once your kids come into care, that's it, you're done. You know, it doesn't matter what you do, you're not going to get your kids back. And so the parents from the very get go don't feel like they have a foot to stand on. Mm -hmm. And I think that by telling stories, even though your children shouldn't have been removed from your home, but to have another story out there of parents getting their children back because there's just mm-hmm. not enough of them out there and they just feel helpless. Absolutely. And, and, and the crazy part is, is that most children are reunited with either their parents or family member. And we don't hear those stories. And so, yeah, like when my kids were in care, I thought that was it. I thought it was done. I thought it was over with because yeah, nobody explained it except for my attorney. He was like, no girl, we're fighting. Like you better put on your boxing gloves to get ready we've got this. And if it wasn't for her, I would have felt like I had no chance in the world to get my kids back because they ultimately really wanted to terminate my rights. They didn't want me to have anything to do with my children ever again. They wanted my husband to divorce me so that he could have the children and for me to have no contact with them ever again. And it's just like, when you're up against that, why try? And so, yeah, like the more stories that we can tell of reunification, especially next month is reunification month, like the more stories that we can share, the more strengthful other parents can feel and other families can feel when they're in the system. Yeah, that's that's just such an important part because those stories are not always told. You know, who wants to who wants to tell that story their worst day, right? Mm-hmm. So many people are afraid to tell that story. They don't want you to think about them that way. And I get it. I get it. I totally do. But those stories need to be told. And that's part of what we're doing here. You know, we, we tell the stories of of people who've been through the system, but we also tell the stories of the parents who've been through the system for needlessly, or sometimes when they needed to be and to see how the system can actually help them get their kids back and live the life that they were designed to live in the first place. Absolutely. And I think, and one thing that I've been loving is that I see a lot more foster parents being more open about the reunification stories that they've been part of. And I think that's powerful because it really kind of, everybody's always tried to put foster parents and parents so separately and that they have to be against one another. And it's been so powerful as a parent to also be seeing so many foster parents coming and voicing reunification stories and supporting it and supporting partnerships. And it's, it really has just changed that narrative. And I think it's also made parents more likely to not hold grudges against foster parents or like down on them and be like, you just want my baby. You know, it's, it's opening up more conversations and more trust. And that's what we need more in this system is more trust and compassion. And, and it's been awesome to kind of see that 
and witness it and to hear those stories is just, it's exactly what we need to be doing in a system altogether. I, I can't agree any more. <laughs> I think you said it perfectly there. <laughs> that That's exactly what we need to do. Even though it's difficult for a biological parent to step into that place and trust any foster parents. And it's difficult for foster parents to trust biological parents mm -hmm. a lot of times because I'm going to tell you, we've seen some horror stories. Yeah. And it's easy for us to all look at each other and be judgmental and think you're a horrible human because your kid's in foster care. And for a biological parent to look at us and go, you're horrible humans. You're just trying to steal my children. And suddenly we, we it all falls apart if we're not working together for the better good of the children. Yeah. It's kind of like that relationship I had with my in-laws. Both sides that are looking at the others with negative lenses so often. And when we break that and we break that stigma of one another, we're able to heal together, which is huge. We need more healing within the system because everyone has traumas and especially families in the system. They come in with trauma, they are put, and then trauma just keeps getting added on top of them. Foster parents go through trauma. We all have traumas and we have to learn how to heal. And we can do that by starting to get those stigmas away so that we can have a positive relationship with one another and take that when you're holding negativity, it's harder to be more successful in anything. It's harder to live a happier life. It's harder to grow. It's harder to thrive when you have so much, when you have so much negativity around you. And so that's one thing I think I'm, you know, I've, I've loved and you said it right there with, you know, really having to look at each other differently and the lights that we have for one another. Amen. Amen. Well, Colleen, I really appreciate you coming in here and telling us your story today. And I wish Amanda could could tell you the same thing, but she's off duct taping children to a wall at the moment because, well, <laughs> they're getting a little bit wild. <laughs> so hopefully for the listeners, they haven't been too loud. I know that I've heard them through the headphones, so I don't know how loud they'll come through, but yeah, she's, she's off handling that. But, you know, we really do appreciate you coming in here and telling the story because it's, it's important. It's important for people to hear your story and to know that their story is just as important and they have just as much of a chance to be able to work through the system in a way to get their kids back and increase that connection between foster parents, biological parents, foster kids, and just ultimately create a better space. Yes. And thank you so much for opening this space for me and welcoming me in. So I really appreciate it. And we appreciate you taking your time. Okay, Foster Care Nation, thank you for listening to Colleen's story. Now take her knowledge and wisdom to heart so you can create live, love and healing in your family and community. Be sure to come back next week. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If you'd like to share your story as a guest, you can reach us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. You can connect with other like-minded people at facebook.com slash groups slash fostercareuj. Don't forget, we have a Buy Me a Coffee account where you can support our mission for as much or little as you'd like. It's at buymeacoffee.com slash fostercare. The links to everything are in the show notes on your podcast player or at fostercarenation.com. And as always, you are so super awesome. I thank you guys so cool, cool, cool. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening.